0: Hey, it's Guy here, and it goes without saying that we live in a pretty noisy world, filled with anxiety and blaring headlines and heated debates, and usually the loudest voices seem to get the most attention. So why would an outspoken environmental activist decide to stop speaking for nearly two decades? Today's episode is all about the power of finding quiet in a noisy world and it originally aired in November of 2014. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um TED, Ted. Technology, Entertainment, Design. Design. Is that really what's TED for? <laughs> I've never known that delivered it's at ever TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination.
1: We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of
0: reality beckons just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. John Francis is an environmental activist. And about a month after he decided to stop talking, things started to get quiet.
2: Even though I wasn't speaking, I was thinking about conversations and arguments that I had in the past and oh maybe I should have said that or next time I'm going to say this and it took about a month before uh, the conversation stopped um, rattling and so when that happened I could hear hear myself I think for the first time in a, in a very long time
0: That was in 1973. And on his birthday that year, John Francis stopped talking. Now this was about 18 months after he stopped doing something else that seems both eccentric and impossible. John stopped riding in cars. And it happened on a particular day in 1971. John was walking along San Francisco Bay when two oil tankers collided. And he watched as thousands of gallons of black oil seeped into the water. And so on that day, John Francis vowed to give up all forms of gas-powered transportation. And he decided instead to walk everywhere.
2: So I argued a lot with people about my walking and how uh, one person might make a difference. I, I don't think I was convinced myself that one person could make a difference. And I decided that I would give my community a gift of my not... Speaking and <laughs> so much.
0: Wait, so you would? So people would come up to you and say, well, "Hey, get in the car, man. Why don't you just stop doing that?" And you would argue with them, and and it just started to get you down.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's just like I was. Um, what I was doing mostly was uh, kind of defending myself and um, and arguing. Yeah, so I, I wanted to stop that.
0: So, so you just decided to stop talking.
2: Yeah, but just for one day. <laughs> That was my idea, was just to not speak for one day, but it it just went on. But if I had started and someone said, John, if you stop speaking today, you're not going to speak for 17 years, I might not have gone on.
0: Finding quiet isn't always an easy thing. I mean, it, it took John Francis 17 years. The world he lives in, the world we all live in, is noisy. And it's usually the loudest people who get most of the attention. So, today on the show, quiet ideas about quiet people, quiet minds, and finding stillness in unexpected places. During all that time that you didn't speak, was your inner voice the same? I mean, did it, did it sound the same as the voice we're hearing now?
2: You know, I don't think so. <laughs> it was, it was. It was, uh, I think my inner voice was uh, different somehow.
0: Later in the show, John Francis returns to explain how he functioned without speaking for so long and why, after 17 years, he decided to start speaking again. But first, maybe you're not about to stop speaking for 17 years, but maybe you do consider yourself somewhat of an introvert, a person who prefers to be alone, a person who, by definition, draws his energy from solitude. But extroverts. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Ballmer. Extroverts are a little different. This is a slightly infamous clip of former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer, who we can safely say gets a lot of his energy from being around other people. I have four words for you. I love this
3: company. Yes!
0: Another famous extrovert, Thank Bill you. Clinton. Tell
3: me how it's affected you again. Um, you know people who've lost their well, jobs, yeah.
0: lost
4: their homes. Uh-huh.
3: Well, I've been governor of a small state for 12 years. I'll tell you how it's affected
4: me. Lots Every
0: and year. lots of celebrities and entertainers are extroverts. They're outspoken, confident, charismatic. Surely you remember the late Joan Rivers? What does
2: your grandson want to do when he grows up? Does he uh, know yet?
3: Right now, he's 10. He wants to be a, a football player. But you know, stupid. What do you want him to be? Gay. <laughs> you want him to be gay? I want him to be gay. <laughs> I want him to be gay. <laughs> Who else is going to give a damn that I knew Judy Garland? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So to me, the question is, well, why do we celebrate only that? Or why why do we value that so much more highly than the opposite set of traits?
0: This is Susan Kane. She's written a book all
1: about introverts. Because, I, I, you know, I think people need to realize, like, we're not talking about um, some tiny percent of the population. We're talking about probably half of humanity, according yeah, to the most recent study. That's crazy. Yeah. and so it, And so it just makes no sense for anybody, really, to be undervaluing this way of being.
0: Susan says, as a culture, we place a higher value on extroverts in all sorts of ways. But why do we do that? Here's her explanation from the TED stage.
1: One answer lies deep in our cultural history. Western societies, and in particular the US, have always favored the man of action over the man of contemplation. But." In in America's early days, we lived in what historians call a culture of character, where we still, at that point, valued people for their inner selves and their moral rectitude. And if you look at the self-help books from this era, they all had titles with things like character, the grandest thing in the world. And they featured role models like Abraham Lincoln, who was praised for being modest and unassuming. Ralph Waldo Emerson called him a man who does not offend by superiority. But then we hit the 20th century, and we entered a new culture that historians call the culture of personality. You know, what happened is we had evolved from an agricultural economy to a world of big business. And so suddenly people are moving from small towns to the cities. And instead of working alongside people they've known all their lives, now they are having to prove themselves in a crowd of strangers. So quite understandably, qualities like magnetism and charisma suddenly come to seem really important. And sure enough, the self-help books change to meet these new needs, and they start to have names like how to win friends and influence people. And they feature as their role models really great salesmen. So that's the world we're living in today. That's our cultural inheritance.
0: Which brings us back to the idea of quiet. Earlier, we mentioned this idea that being introverted means you get a lot of your energy from being alone. And Susan Cain says that's actually a good way to think about it. But there's actually a biological explanation behind all of this
1: as well. Which is to say that introverts have nervous systems, literally, that react more to stimulation of all kinds, from social stimulation to the stimulation of lots of noise in a room.
0: And scientists have researched this. There was one study in particular. By a psychologist
1: named Russell Gein. And
0: Gein gave two groups of people a series of math problems. But then he switched on some background noise. So for one group, it sounded a little bit like this. About as loud as a restaurant at lunchtime. But for the second group, they had to solve their math problems with noise about as loud as a leaf blower behind them. So, when Gein compared his results...
1: He found that the extroverts were able to do well with the background noise playing more loudly. and And the introverts needed less background noise to work at their best.
0: Now, we think of introverts as sort of being stuck in their own heads, simply because they're quiet. But what Gein's research showed was precisely the opposite, that introverts are susceptible to being pulled out of their own heads pretty easily. And they can become overwhelmed and distracted by too much stimulation in noisy or crowded
1: places. Um, And extroverts tend to have nervous systems that react less and therefore crave more stimulation in order to feel kind of at their most alive and energized. And uh, I think that's really profound research, you know, for thinking about how children and adults, you know, all humans, uh, thrive. Our most important institutions, our schools and our workplaces... They are designed mostly for extroverts, and for extroverts need for lots of stimulation. Nowadays, your typical classroom has pods of desks of four or five or six or seven kids all facing each other. And kids are working in countless group assignments, even in subjects like math and creative writing, which you would think would depend on solo flights of thought. Kids are now expected to act as committee members. Same thing is true in our workplaces. We now, most of us, work in open plan offices, without walls, um, where we are subject to the constant noise and gaze of our coworkers. And when it comes to leadership, introverts are routinely passed over for leadership positions. Even though introverts tend to be very careful, much less likely to take outsized risks, which is something we might all uh, favor nowadays. And what I'm saying is that culturally, we need a much better balance. We need more of a yin and yang between these two types. Now, this is especially important when it comes to creativity and to productivity, because when psychologists look at the lives of the most creative people, what they find are people who um, are very good at exchanging ideas and advancing ideas, but who also have a serious streak of introversion in them.
0: So what's the connection between introverts and, and, like, creative types?
1: Well, um, I mean, some, some studies show that they're just introverts, and some say they're kind of a mix of introverts and extroverts, where, like, they're extroverted enough that they can get their ideas out there and exchange ideas with other people, but they're introverted enough that they can tolerate the solitude that creativity requires. Because um, I, I think this is one of the great, great misconceptions of the modern age. This whole idea of collaboration has become such a sacred word and concept yeah. that we think that creativity all has to emerge from this very collaborative place. But the same is also true of solitude. It, you, you can't really know what you and you alone think unless you're willing to be by yourself for a while. Now, none of this is to say that social skills are unimportant. And I'm also not calling for the abolishing of teamwork at all. And the problems that we are facing today in fields like science and in economics are so vast and so complex that we are going to need armies of people coming together to solve them, working together. But I am saying that the more freedom that we give introverts to be themselves, the more likely that they are to come up with their own unique solutions to these problems. So I wish you the best of all possible journeys and the courage to speak softly. Thank you very much.
0: Susan Cain. Her book, based on these ideas, is called Quiet, the Power of Introverts. You can see her full talk at ted.npr.org. I'm Guy Raz. More ideas about quiet in a moment. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. You wanna invest your money, but there's one problem. You're not sure where to begin. Luckily, there's E-Trade. E-Trade simplifies investing without the financial jargon. Plus, their easy-to-use platform keeps you in the know about your money at all times. And if you need a hand at any point, E-Trade's investment professionals are standing by to help. For more information, visit etradecom NPR. ETrade Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Thanks also to Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes only the most important need-to-know information from thousands of best-selling nonfiction books and condenses this information down to short explainers that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. You can try it out for free by going to blinkist.com slash radio hour. B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot slash radio
3: hour. The StoryCorps podcast returns this fall with 12 all-new episodes about reunions. This week, what it's like to spend years searching for a father, only to find someone you didn't even know you were looking for. Hear more on the StoryCorps podcast. Episodes are available every Tuesday.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, quiet. Quiet. Now, it might seem strange to think of noise as the thing you would seek out if you were trying to quiet things down, right? But for some people, noise, it's the only remedy. So, this is music from Megan, actually, Megan, why don't you introduce yourself, please?
3: My name is Megan Washington, and I am a musician from Australia. And Megan's not
0: just some random Australian musician. She's a pretty big deal there. Her records have gone platinum. She performs in front of thousands of people. It's sounding like next year's going to be a pretty big one for you.
3: Um, Yeah, and I'm really excited about it.
0: And on the face of it, Megan seems like a total extrovert. I mean, just listen to this TV interview, because she sounds like... She sounds like a pop star.
3: I've been in London all year making an album, and it's coming out next year. We'll have some new music in about February, or January, Sorry. or March. Who knows? Mystery, mystery. Um, and
0: Now, this is the person I Megan Washington has actually. to be. Like sort of involved. like what Susan Cain was just saying, that our value is measured in a lot of ways by how charismatic we are. And so a lot of us try to be that, including Megan Washington. So when she went up on the TED stage, Megan revealed a secret that even some of her really close friends never knew.
3: I have a, a problem. It's not the worst thing in the world. I'm fine. I'm not on fire. I know that other people in the world have far worse things to, to deal with, but for me, language and music are inextricably linked through this one thing. And the thing is that I have a stutter. It might seem curious given that I spend a lot of my life on the stage. One would assume that I'm comfortable uh, in the public sphere and comfortable here speaking to you guys. But the truth is that I've spent my life up until this point, and including this point, living in mortal dread of public speaking. Public singing, a whole different thing. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a moment. I've never really talked about it before so explicitly, I think that that's because I've always lived in hope that when I was a grown-up, um, I, 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 would, I wouldn't uh, have, have one. I'm 28. Um, I'm pretty sure that I'm grown now. <laughs> and I'm an adult woman who spends her life as a, a performer with a speech impediment. So I may as well come clean about it. So, Megan,
0: this was like a really big deal when you said this because people were surprised, right?
3: Really, yeah. I I don't know. I just assumed that everybody knew that I was hiding it or disguising it. But I was quite surprised by how many people didn't know, which was everybody.
0: (laughs) When did you realize that singing would enable you to completely overcome it?
3: Well... Singing is a pretty common therapy for speech t- disorder in t- t- general. Um
0: if you were to sing this your answers to to me you would not have any stutter.
3: Nope. I wow. would not have any stutter. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? But you know, guy like I can t- do the voice if you want. Like there's a voice like a, t- t- a character's voice where you know that I, that I use in life to get through interviews like this when my stutter is not sort of welcome. What does the the voice sound like? Well, it's just sort of like this, and you wouldn't really tell that it's different to my other voice, except that when I use this voice... um you know, everything just comes out really smoothly. I sound much more confident, and nothing happens. You know, it's fine. And the problem with this voice is that it's not—it's not my voice. You know what I mean? It's not my. It's, it's the voice that gets the job done. But as an artist who feels that their work is is based solely on a, a platform of honesty and being real, um, that feels often like cheating which is why before I sing I wanted to tell you what singing means to me. It's more than making nice sounds um, and it's more than making nice songs. It's more than feeling known or understood. It's more than... making you feel the, the things that I feel. Somehow, through some miraculous synaptic function of the human brain, it's impossible to stutter when you sing.
0: When you sing, and when you sort of discover that, that this was a way for you to Express yourself fluidly. It's almost like you are quieting down this thing inside of you that you don't have control over otherwise.
3: That's completely accurate. I find the act of singing extremely. The word I want to use is tenseless. When I speak um, a lot, you know, I often find that the muscles in my jaw and my tongue are quite tense, and it's you know if if it's it takes a lot of effort to kind of get things out in a way that make s- sense and it, you're always sort of excusing words that you've tried to say and just just the simplicity of singing is um it's a place of stillness and calm. Singing, for me, is sweet relief. (laughs) It is the only time when I feel fluent. Uh, It is the only time when what comes out of my mouth is comprehensively exactly what I intended. (laughs) So, I know that this is a TED talk, but now I'm going to TED sing. (laughs) Uh, This is a song that I wrote last year Thank you very much Thank you
0: Australian singer-songwriter Megan Washington Her newest album, There, There Came out in September Check out her full talk at TED.com I
5: would
3: be a beauty With my nose Slightly too big for my face And I would be a dreamer but my dream Slightly too big for this space
0: Back to the story of John Francis. He's the guy that we heard from earlier in the show who took a 17-year vow of silence, which, by the way, even John admits is totally nuts.
2: I, I do. <laughs> even now, I think, look back and say, what did you do? I mean, how did you do that? Yeah. I, I even ask myself.
0: Here's the story, as John told it, from the TED stage.
2: My journey began uh, in 1971, when I witnessed uh, two oil tankers collide beneath the Golden Gate and a half a million gallons of oil spilled into the bay. It disturbed me so much that I decided that I was going to give up riding and driving in motorized vehicles. That's a big thing in California, and people would drive up next to me and say, "John, what are you doing?" And I'd say, "Well, I'm uh, I'm walking for the environment." And they said, "No, you're walking to make us look bad, right?" And so. I argued with people about that. I argued and I argued. I called my parents up, I said, I've given up riding and driving in cars. My dad said, why didn't you do that when you were 16? (laughs) I didn't know about the environment then. They're back in Philadelphia. And so, um, I told my mother I'm happy though. I'm really happy, she said. And if you were happy, son, you wouldn't have to say it. Mothers are like that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, on my my 27th birthday, I decided because I argued so much and I talked so much, you see, (laughs) that I was going to stop speaking for just one day, one day to give it a rest. And so I did. I got up in the morning and I didn't say a word.
0: It sounds like you were at a place in life where, I don't know, a part of you was unhappy with the kind of person that you had become and that you were almost looking to figure out a way to transform that into into something else.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I, I think that the reason why I stopped speaking may have been to avoid arguments. Uh, but I think that as the journey went on, there were just other things that piqued my interest about not speaking. And so in order to at least... Uh, satisfy myself, um, I, I made the promise or the vow, I guess, that I would revisit that decision on my birthday. And that ended the questioning of when I was going to speak. I didn't have to ask myself every day, Is to, are, are you going to speak today? I just didn't do that. I just said I was going to sp- not speak for one year and then uh, I'd see what would happen.
0: So a year became two. Then three, and soon John had gone to college, earned a Ph.D., walked across the entire country all without speaking. And when he met someone new,
2: I would cross my heart, uh, put a finger over my mouth, like uh, you know, I'm promising to be silent. And and then I would cup my hand around my ear, and and nod so that you could say that, oh, I can hear.
3: Maybe I can understand not driving, maybe, but not talking.
0: About 14 years into his silence, this is in 1987, CBS aired this story about John, who by that time had walked all over the country and all over the world.
3: A long time ago, you talked, right? You talked real well. You're a smooth talker.
0: In this story, he communicated with his own form of sign language. Gestures, facial expressions, and it's actually surprisingly easy to understand what he's trying to say. Inside your head. It started to get quiet inside your head. he started listening. When you were out there on your own, was your, was your mind clear? Was it full? Was it quiet? Was it loud? Like, what do you remember?
2: Yeah, there were, there's a, a couple of things that when I'm walking, and I might be thinking of uh, the road and where I'm going. But at some point, uh, I realize that as I'm walking, I'm not thinking ab- about the road and where I'm going. In fact, um, I catch myself not thinking. And then I'm thinking again, of course, but so there are long periods of times that I was just being uh, on the planet and breathing. And I think maybe breathing has a lot to do with that.
0: As the years went by, John did a lot of writing, he was named a goodwill ambassador to the UN, and he became known as the Planet Walker all without using his voice. And then, one day, he was wandering through a prison town in Venezuela, and he was suddenly struck by a thought that, in some ways, he had become a prisoner, too.
2: The prison that I was in was the fact that I did not drive or use motorized vehicles. Now, how could that be? Because when I started, it seemed very appropriate to me not to use motorized vehicles. But the thing that was different was every birthday I asked myself about silence, but I never asked myself about my decision to just use my feet. I didn't know who I would be if I changed. And I know that a lot of times we find ourselves in this wonderful place where we've gotten to, but there's another place for us to go. And we... Kind of have to leave behind the security of who we've become and go to the place for who we are becoming. So I want to thank you for being here. And I want to end this in five seconds of silence. Thank you.
0: I mean, it is true. Like you think about silence, and most of us don't experience that on a day-to-day basis, right? Because we go to our jobs and we live, whether we live in a city or not. Like we still interact with people, and there's sounds and there's noise in our in our minds. Um, but then sometimes you do experience it. Like you go to a, a church or, or or a really quiet space, and you you realize the power of quiet.
2: Hmm. It is pervasive. I mean, it's there. Um, we just have to. Uh, hear it, Uh, listening. I mean, what happened for me was that I just began to learn so much. I began to learn at least uh, what other people felt and what they wanted to say before uh, cutting them off with my own, you know, diatribe. I uh, I used to do that. I used to listen to someone just enough to think I knew what they were going to say, and then I would stop listening, uh, because I thought I knew what they were going to say, and, and then I would start thinking about what I was going to say back uh, to show them that they were wrong, or that um, I could say that better, or look how smart I am. Um, and so th- that was a great relief to me, because I, I was just able to, to learn from so many people, and, and you know, people, have so much to teach one another if we listen to each other. So uh, I I was very fortunate to, to discover that, I think.
0: After 17 years of silence, John Francis got so good at listening to other people that he'd almost become a different person. And the voice he once had, kind of angry, a little combative unsure, it was gone. And so on Earth Day in 1990, John gathered a bunch of friends and family and he told them to meet him at a hotel in Washington, D.C. And he stood in front of them. And for the first time in 17 years, he spoke.
2: And I said, thank you for being here. And I kind of looked behind me because I thought someone was standing behind me who had somehow said what I was thinking, and then I realized it was me.
0: John Francis, his entire TED Talk and his amazing story can be found at TED.com. More ideas about the power of quiet in just a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to American Express. American Express believes sharing experiences and ideas help businesses thrive. They want to help keep your business humming by offering you flexible funding solutions such as business loans. Eligible card members can get business loans up to $50,000 decided in as little as 60 seconds. And that could keep you moving at the speed of business. The powerful backing of American Express. Don't do business without it. Terms apply. For details, visit americanexpress.com/business. Thanks also to ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners to this program can try ZipRecruiter for free at ziprecruiter.com hour.
3: As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about quiet. So about 10 years ago... Gavin Predder-Pinney, who's a graphic designer, moved from the U.K. to Rome for about a year. And he would wander around the city, pop into museums and churches,
4: and he started to notice a pattern in the artwork. There were lots of clouds. Clouds in the uh, Baroque frescoes. Clouds in the, the churches in Rome. When I came back, I thought, you know, maybe... Uh, Clouds is something I should do something with more generally.
0: Gavin mentioned the idea to a friend who suggested he give a talk at a local arts festival. But he worried that nobody would show up to a presentation about
4: clouds. So I called it the inaugural lecture of the Cloud Appreciation Society. And it worked. But of course, they all came up to me afterwards and said, that's great, you know, how do I join your society? And at that moment... The
0: Cloud Appreciation Society was born. That was a few years ago, and it literally changed Gavin's life because his future wife
4: also became a member. We've got two kids, and um, the oldest one, Flora, uh, her middle name is Cirrus, actually. Oh, (laughs) makes perfect sense. I lobbied. (laughs) I lobbied for that one.
0: And so, as Gavin says in his TED Talk... There's something about that quiet moment when you
4: stop, look up, and notice a cloud. But I think they're beautiful, don't you? It's just that their beauty is missed because they're so omnipresent, so, I don't know, commonplace, that people don't notice them. They don't notice the beauty, but they don't even notice the clouds unless they get in the way of the sun. They think of them as the annoying frustrating obstructions, and then they rush off and do some blue-sky thinking. (laughs) But most people, when you stop to ask them, will admit to harboring a strange sort of fondness for clouds. It's like a nostalgic fondness. And they make them think of their youth. Who here can't remember thinking, well, looking and finding shapes in the clouds when they were kids? You know, when you were masters, Of daydreaming. It's just that these days us adults seem reluctant to allow ourselves the indulgence of just allowing our imaginations to to drift along in the breeze and I think that's a pity. I think we should perhaps do a bit more of it. I think we should be a bit more willing perhaps to look at the beautiful sight of the sunlight bursting out from behind the clouds and go, wait a minute, there's two cats dancing a salsa. <laughs> or seeing the big... <laughs> or seeing the, uh, the big white puffy one up there over the shopping center looks like the abominable snowman going to rob a bank.
0: So why do we forget to do that? I mean, to just, to just like look at the sky and let our imaginations run wild.
4: Well, you know, there are a lot of distractions... And in fact, there are probably more distractions these days than there have ever been. You know, you never stick on anything for long. And so um, I talk about cloud spotting being something that legitimizes doing nothing. And I had this the other day before a talk. I was kind of nervous and I stepped outside and walked along. And then I saw a hummingbird come along and take some nectar from the blossom of a tree in front of me. And I just sort of locked on that and looked at it for a moment and that was kind of enough to sort of centre me. It's the same thing with, with clouds. I find that sometimes by paying attention to something outside of yourself is just enough for you to kind of find yourself centred again. Clouds are not something to moan about. Far from it. They are in fact the most diverse, evocative, poetic aspect of nature. I think if you live with your head in the clouds every now and then, it helps you keep your feet on the ground. And I want to show you why. It's the cirrus cloud, named after the Latin for a lock of hair. It's composed entirely of ice crystals, cascading from the upper reaches of the troposphere. And as these ice crystals fall, they pass through different layers with different winds, and they speed up and slow down, giving the cloud these brush-stroked appearances, these brush-stroke forms known as fall streaks. And these winds up there can be very, very fierce. They can be 200 miles an hour, 300 miles an hour. These clouds are bombing along, but from all the way down here, they appear to be moving gracefully, slowly, like most clouds. And so to tune in to the clouds is to slow down, to calm down. It's like a bit of everyday meditation. We need to be reminded that slowing down and being in the present, not thinking about what you've got to do and what you should have done, but just being here, letting your imagination lift from the everyday concerns down here, and just being in the present, it's good for you. It's good for your ideas. It's good for your creativity. It's good for your soul. Thank you very much.
0: Cloud Spotter Gavin Predder Pinney. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. But by the way, Gavin, uh, where's the best place to, to look at clouds?
4: The best place to go cloud spotting is in your backyard. Oh, okay. Clouds are the most egalitarian of nature's displays because we all have a great view of the sky and you don't have to go somewhere special to see them. You can, uh, if you're in the right frame of mind, if you're paying attention to the sky, you will be able to see interesting, unusual, exotic formations wherever you are.
0: When it comes to quiet or introspection or stillness, Pico Iyer seems like he's a little too busy for all of that. (laughs) I was born on a plane almost, it feels like that. Pico's a writer and a journalist and he does this for a living. He travels all over the world and he writes about his travels. And in some ways, Pico's been in motion
5: his entire life. I was born in Oxford, England to parents from India and then When I was seven, we moved to California, so suddenly I was a part of three different places. And then I began going back to school in England while my parents were living in California when I was nine. So, yes, I think I very quickly got into the sense that motion was my second nature.
0: And when Pico grew up, that's exactly the kind of life he created for himself.
5: I remember when I was in my 20s, in the middle of this very fast-paced life in New York City, got to take wonderful vacations in Bali and Burma and El Salvador and writing on world affairs and really interesting friends, and I felt I was right in the middle of the moment. And yet, I realized that I had so created my life that I didn't have enough minutes in the day to work out if this was really making me happy. And so I thought, um, I need to stop right now and go to a very clear environment, and then take stock of things.
0: So Pico decided to go somewhere else, somewhere completely new, where occasionally he could just sit still. He tells the rest of the story from the TED stage.
5: And so I abandoned my dream life for a single room on the back streets of Kyoto, Japan, uh, which was the place that had long exerted a strong, really mysterious gravitational pull on me. Even as a child, I would just look at a painting of Kyoto and feel I recognized it. I I knew it before I ever laid eyes on it. But it's also, as you all know, a beautiful city encircled by hills filled with more than 2,000 temples and shrines where people have been sitting still for 800 years or more. And quite soon after I moved there, I ended up where I still am Uh, with my wife, formerly our kids, in a two-room apartment in the middle of nowhere where we have no bicycle, no car, no TV, I can understand. So clearly this is not ideal for job advancement uh, or for cultural excitement or for social diversion. But I realized that it gives me what I prize most, which is days and hours. Every morning when I wake up, really the day stretches in front of me. Like an open meadow, and so I made that move 27 years ago, and I can honestly say it's one of the choices in my life I have never regretted.
0: But I mean, even hearing you say that, I think a lot of people would say
5: this is a privilege, right? Like, I mean, do do you think that's true? It is, but not as much uh, as we we sometimes think it is. And it's interesting because, for example, a couple of years ago, I went to see my doctor and he looked at my chart and he said, you're pretty healthy, but you must take exercise 30 minutes a day. And as soon as he said that, I signed up at a health club and I go every day of my life. But when somebody says you should take 30 minutes being quiet every day, going to the mental health club, ensuring that your imagination and and mind and spirit are as healthy as your body, I say, oh no, I don't have time to to sit in a corner for 30 minutes or take a walk or unplug. Uh, And yet, that's much more fundamental, I would say, to my well-being and my overall health than walking the treadmill. So I think uh, we're getting caught up in an accelerating world that's moving faster and faster, almost at the speed of a machine more than a human, and we're getting out of breath. There's no way we can keep up with that. And of course, sitting still is how many of us get what we most crave and need in our accelerated lives, a break. But it was also the only way that I could find to sift through the slideshow of my experience and make sense of the future and the past. And so, to my great surprise, I found that going nowhere was at least as exciting as going to Tibet or to Cuba. And by going nowhere, I mean nothing more intimidating than taking a few minutes out of every day or a few days out of every season. In order to sit still long enough to find out what moves you most, to recall where your truest happiness lies, and to remember that sometimes making a living and making a life point in opposite directions. And of course, this is what wise beings through the centuries from every tradition have been telling us, it's an old idea. More than 2,000 years ago, the Stoics were reminding us, it's not our experience that makes our lives, it's what we do with it. And this has certainly been my experience as a traveler. Twenty-four years ago, I took the most mind-bending trip across North Korea, but the trip lasted a few days. What I've done with it, sitting still, going back to it in my head, trying to understand it, finding a place for it in my thinking, that's lasted 24 years already and will probably last a lifetime. The trip, in other words, gave me some amazing sights, but it's only sitting still that allows me to turn those into lasting insights.
0: How do you do it? I mean, is there is there a
5: room? Is there a chair? Is there a place or a way that you find that? <laughs> well, I'm lucky because, of course, as a writer, I'm obliged to sit for maybe three weeks in, in one place at my little desk. Uh, and I think in some ways that's where so much of my life takes place because we all know that experiences are, as it were, the raw material of our life, but it's what we do with them that is our life itself. That's the heart of our experience, not the things that have happened to us, but how we have responded to them. And so I always think the fundamental moments in life come when suddenly you lose love, or suddenly uh, somebody close to you gets a terrible diagnosis, or when you get a terrible diagnosis. And I feel that when I visit my doctor and he comes into the room with a very dark expression on his face, the thing that's going to help me there is the moments when I've been still and when I've collected myself, not the moments when I've been running around to Easter Island or, or Bhutan or even you know walking through Times Square. It's in stillness that we prepare ourselves for dealing with the realities of life, which are often very difficult ones. I mean, the thing about stillness is that
0: your head can be a very loud place, especially if things in your life are, are difficult. Or if there's anxiety or other things happening, like
5: how do you clear that out to make that space to get to stillness? I think you clear the anxiety by sitting still and addressing it and uh, and and seeing it come and go in some ways. But you're absolutely right. When I go and sit still at my desk as a writer for five hours every day, often there's hours. agonizing, that torture. And I think a monk would tell you that a large part of the time he spends alone in his cell is spent with doubt and darkness, but running around is never going to address those feelings very well. It's only going to evade them. And I think actually one of the things that you find if you sit still is those feelings of anxiety and all the sufferings and pains that every one of us know fall into a kind of proportion. In your talk, you mentioned that um only by slowing down
0: can we see that that sometimes making a living and making a life point in, in different directions.
5: Yes, I think that's really why I left New York City in a nutshell, because I felt making a living was not the same thing as making a life. And I was making a nice enough living then and very comfortable, but that wasn't a life. And we all know on our deathbed when somebody says to you, what made your life fulfilling. Our job will be part of it, but it certainly won't be all of it. And answering emails and uh, scrolling through YouTube will be a small part of it. But there are other things that are probably going to be much more at the heart of what we're glad to have done. And they will probably have to do with our relationships. Uh, moments of quiet, our explorations, but certainly much more to do with the invisible part of our life, I would say, than the visible. And I think that's where it's easy to ignore that invisible bank account in the same way as it's easy to ignore the mental health club. And yet the invisible bank account is what's making you rich and the, the mental health club is what's making you healthy. And I think many of us have the sensation, I certainly do, that we're standing about two inches away from a huge screen. And it's noisy, and it's crowded, and it's changing with every second, and that screen is our lives. And it's only by stepping back, and then further back, and holding still, that we can begin to see what the canvas means, and to catch the larger picture. So in an age of acceleration, nothing can be more exhilarating than going slow. And in an age of distraction, nothing is so luxurious as paying attention. And in an age of constant movement, nothing is so urgent as sitting still. Thank you.
0: Writer and traveler Pico Iyer. He's the author of a newly released TED book. It's called The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. You can find out more about it at TED.com. There's
4: a man next door to the radio And he plays it all through the night There's a couple in the apartment above my head That don't do nothing but fuss and fight I can't get no sleep in this noisy street I've got to move I've got to
0: find me a Thanks for listening to our show this week on Quiet. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Bridget McCarthy, with help from our intern Amanda Honigfort, Daniel Shukin, Portia Robertson-Migus, and Eric Newsom. I'm Guy Raz. You've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.